speaking of prayer, let's have a word of prayer right now and then we'll get into our, our study for today. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for this holy Sabbath day and this opportunity that we have to come together this morning and worship thee by song and, and by study of your scriptures and uh, from our hearts. As the Bible tells us, to worship Thee in spirit and in truth. And we wish to do that here this morning. We humbly ask that You'll be with us here. Send the Holy Spirit to uh, enlighten our minds. Give us discernment. Cleanse us from uh, our unworthiness and our sins. We claim the blood of Jesus for for that. Uh, We pray also that You'll be with those who can be, uh, be with us here or in houses of worship today. We pray that you be very near to them, send angels to surround them, and may they get a taste of heaven, even though they may be home. Uh, We pray for those who are ill and sick. We think of uh, Susan's mother, Dorothy. We pray that you be very near to her and heal her from this infection. Uh, Be with uh, Rollins' mother as well and Deb's client. Uh, We know, Lord, that uh, it's not fun uh, to get old. (laughs) We're experiencing it every day. And so we pray for these dear souls. Please give me the words to speak this morning. Uh, may they be your words. May they be the truth and not uh, opinions. And uh, may we understand uh, these truths that we are studying about in the books of Daniel and Revelation. That we may share it with others and all may be prepared for what's coming. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this particular uh, study, Three Unclean Spirits versus Three Angels. The book of Revelation, in case you haven't noticed, is, uh, yeah, I mentioned that, didn't I? In the bulletin are the the notes, or the the scripture references that will be used in in our message this morning. So if you have a bulletin, you have a copy of those, you can follow along whenever I say, you know, let's go to such and such, or (laughs) you have it right there, you can take it home and look it up yourself. Uh, And uh, I encourage that anyway, right? And and like I was saying, um, the book of Revelation is different from any other part of the Bible. Would you agree with that? As a prophetic history of the the church of all ages, it's largely, really, a book of quotes. Uh, Someone's calculated that out of 404 verses... 276 are either directly quoted or paraphrased from the Old Testament scriptures. That's quite a lot. It seems clearly evident no one can properly understand that last book, that revelation, unless they also have a familiarity with uh, the writings of Moses and, and the prophets. And we've seen that. We've seen that Daniel helps us to understand Revelation, well, actually, Revelation is the books of Daniel's unsealed, aren't they? And expanded upon. Praise God for that. Um, and, and this may account for the confusion that we see in Christendom uh, today over the meaning of, of these symbolic beasts that John describes. Uh, the New Testament, you know, the New Testament. Bill, we talked about this sometime. People like to put away with the Old Testament. Oh, that's for a different age. The New Testament, church bodies who look at the Old Testament as just fulfillments of, you know, some, some Jewish past, uh, they, they really, they don't find any relevance in the writings of John in the book of Revelation. That's why uh, you hear the reason, you know, they, they say, well, you can't understand Revelation. It's really not important, right? And so, to a large extent, it's ignored. Well, that you just can't understand it. Um, but you know, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul, he wrote this to, to Timothy. He said, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. We're familiar with this Scripture, aren't we? It's profitable for what? For, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So what is the reason for all scripture? It's to help to perfect the human being's character. So that's why it's all profitable for these things, for doctrine and such. 
And since the New Testament had not yet been written, we can be certain that Paul was referring to what? The Old Testament scriptures, right? For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, Paul said in Romans 15.4. These texts establish that the prophecies of Revelation are especially applicable to our own day and were inspired for, as he said, our doctrine, our learning, and our instruction in righteousness. And just as the book of Genesis tells of the beginning of the great controversy between good and evil, that's where it started, the last book of the Bible describes the close of that conflict. You've got the beginning and the end, see. And this makes it one of the most important books, I believe, in the whole Bible. How many people purchase a book and read every chapter except the last one? Right? I mean, think about that in Christendom. And it's, it's easy to see some who put away the Old Testament, but there are others who will read every book except that very last one. And that tells you how it ends. It's rather amazing to me. So as we saw the last time we were together... Revelation, it describes the kind of people God will take to heaven and how they will be overcomers, um, as it says, by the blood of the Lamb. It warns also against the final assaults which Satan will throw against us as the battle rages to a climax. Really, it's an incredible book. It's an incredible book. If you were going to write a fictional book, that would be an incredible book to write, the book of Revelation. In fact, if it was considered fantasy, like some of the science fiction books you see in the library, I would dare say it'd be a bestseller. People would go through and go, wow, this is incredible. They need to make movies out of this. And how the devil hates that book. How he hates the Bible. It exposes his origin, his devices, and it also tells us about his final destiny, doesn't it? He doesn't like that. Can we expect Satan to attack these prophecies that lay open his plans? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. How has he attacked these prophecies? Well, in our very first meeting here, we, when we came together, we, we looked at these two uh, methods that he invented as an attack on prophecy. Do you remember? One was futurism, and one was preterism. And, and these were methods of prophetical interpretation, and, and by them, the, our great adversary, he struck a blow at the foundation of prophetic understanding. As you see today, most people, most of the theories today, and that's what they are as theories, are based on futurism. It's, it's incredible. But it is the biblical prophetical interpretation method of historicism uh, which establishes uh, the day-for-a-year principle, for one thing, that brings all the puzzle pieces together into perfect order. It removes all the confusion, and I hope we've seen this during our series here in our study into prophecy. This morning I'd like to study with you about the final battle uh, in this conflict between Christ and Satan. Satan tries, and, and I hope you recognize this, I think you do, he tries to counterfeit and contradict everything God does. Have you noticed that? He's a master at it. That's why so many people are deceived. He's a master at it. He takes the truth and he formulates a plan to say exactly the opposite of what God says and he causes people to believe that it is actually the truth. It's rather remarkable. It started in the Garden of Eden when the serpent told Eve she could disobey God and still go on living without any negative consequences. When God what? He told her explicitly, didn't he, that she would die if she didn't do exactly what he said. Isn't that what he told her? He told Adam and Eve that. In fact, not only did Satan tell Eve there would be no negative consequences, he told her there would only be positive ones. Satan contradicted what God said. And he's been doing it ever since. And after 6,000 years of practice, he's become very, very good at it. In Revelation chapter 16, this is the heart of our study today. 
Revelation 16, verses 13 and 14, notice what the Apostle John said. He said, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So it's clear that this threefold message coming out of these three unclean spirits will affect the whole world. And the consequences of these messages are leading us to a final showdown. The, as John says at the battle of the great day of who? Of God Almighty. And I want you to notice, friends, what John's saying here. He's saying this is God's battle. That means he's the one in charge. And that is a comfort, or should be, to those of us who follow God, if he's our God. Also notice that it reaffirms that the whole world will be gathered together for this battle. That means that everyone's going to be involved, doesn't it? When when the Bible says the whole world, that means you and me and everyone else, doesn't it? The whole world. This also means that there's no way for for everyone in the whole world to be literally gathered into a small valley in the Middle East to fight this battle. There are a lot of evangelicals that teach that. Um, Therefore, it has to, to primarily be a spiritual battle if everyone is going to be involved, which also means it's a battle between earth and heaven and not a battle between nation and nation fighting with literal weapons on a certain piece of real estate in the Middle East. You know what I'm saying? Now that's not to say that the devil is not trying to marshal up forces to fight in that area of the world as a great deception to the truth. Okay, He's doing that, isn't he? That's part of his counterfeiting of what God has said. Um, but we're talking about spiritual warfare that's being going to be done on a worldwide scale. Revelation is primarily a symbolic book, wouldn't you agree? And, and that's what John wrote in the very first verse, actually the first chapter. If we look at Revelation 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, "...the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass." And he sent, and notice this, it says, and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. When John said God sent and signified the message by his angel, that means that the things he wrote about are largely symbolic because the root word for signified is sign. And the word sign means to communicate an idea by using symbols. And a symbol is something that represents something else. Sign language is a good example, isn't it? It represents something else, doesn't it? And of course, the Spirit of Prophecy agrees with this. This is from the book Acts of the Apostles, page 583. In figures and symbols... Subjects of vast importance were presented to John, which he was to record that the people of God living in his age and in future ages, that'd be us, right? Might have an intelligent understanding of the perils and conflicts before them. Now, this does not mean that there's nothing literal presented in the book of Revelation. Sometimes the symbols are dropped and God intends for us to take it literally. That's why we need to understand correct Bible study principles. Some people get mixed up on that. But always keep in mind, as you study, that Revelation is highly symbolic. And let the Bible interpret itself. And you'll be able to understand something that most Christians believe is a sealed book. And we know otherwise from our studies, don't we? It's not sealed. Now, this isn't the main subject, but I'd like to share a couple quotes with you about this great battle that we just read about a moment ago in Revelation 16. Because many people today 
have various ideas about it. The first one is from Ellen White. The second one is from her husband. And, and by the way, they uh, were one. They were together in their understanding about this. They were in complete agreement about this subject. Some people I've read say, no, he believed one way, she believed another, but that's not true. Let's notice this here. It's from Review and Herald, May 13, 1902. She says, a terrible conflict is before us. We are nearing the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Now that gives us our reference, doesn't it? Didn't we read that in Revelation 16? That which has been held in control is to be let loose. The angel of mercy is folding her wings, preparing to step down from the throne and leave the world to the control of Satan. Can we see some of this today? And what's going on? It's, it's remarkable, really, to live in the time we're living in. The principalities and powers of earth are in bitter revolt against the God of heaven. They are filled with hatred against those who serve Him. And soon... Have you seen the hatred against believers around the world today? Persecution is on the rise for Christians. I saw a video the other day. A guy put statistics together and he said, Christians are the most persecuted religion in the world today and he he stacked up all these numbers in all the different countries around the world where Christians are being persecuted in one respect or another and from uh, just uh, uh, denying rights in certain countries like here there's you know you, the government's stepping in and if you don't believe in certain things let's say like a, a homosexual marriage and uh, you have a business they're forcing you and or fining you if you don't partake, you know, in that service, doing a service for them. Like, uh, what was it? The uh, the baker baking a cake for a, a homosexual marriage, a wedding. They go from that all the way to some parts of the Middle East, where they're being put to death, and not just put to death, but in the most uh, evil of ways. In fact, uh, in this particular uh, video, he th- this person showed how Christianity is on decline in these countries in northern Afri- Africa. It's down, you start from the top of Africa, which is the Middle East, and come down about a third of the whole continent. There's hardly any Christians there anymore. They've either... Um, escaped these countries or they've been put to death. <laughs> Compared to, you know, 50 years ago when there was a, a large Christian um, population in these nations. So it's very remarkable to, to see and it's just another one of those signs, isn't it, that Jesus spoke about. She says the principalities and powers of earth are in bitter revolt against the God of heaven. They are filled with hatred against those who serve Him. And soon, very soon, will be fought the last great battle between good and evil. The earth is to be the battlefield. Did you catch that? The earth is to be the battlefield, the scene of the final contest, and the final victory. That was written in 1902. Some time ago, huh? So this battle is not between nation and nation, but between good and evil. And the earth is to be the battlefield and not just one small location uh, in the Middle East, right? And again, if the whole world is involved, even that one small location somewhere in the Middle East will be involved as well, right? (laughs) Okay. Now after quoting... Revelation 16, James White said this in a Review and Herald article in 1862, some, what, 40 years before her statement. He said, here it is seen, and he's speaking about our subject, Revelation 16 here, here it is seen that the great battle is not between nation and nation, but between earth and heaven. And so Armageddon is primarily a spiritual battle. And yet, we must also recognize that even spiritual battles will have physical consequences. That's the way it is, isn't it? 
And this has proved true many times throughout history. It's being proved true today. Like I mentioned, you know, with all this persecution taking place, terrorist attacks being perpetrated under the name of radical Islam, and all the while the three unclean spirits are doing their work in preparation for the final struggle against heaven. And here's something else to keep in mind. The gathering for the battle of Armageddon and Armageddon itself takes place during the seven last plagues. Which means, beloved, our salvation or our eternal destruction will have already been determined when it's, been, when it's fought. Because human probation closes before the vials of God's wrath are poured out. So whether we're alive when the battle takes place or whether we die beforehand, we are developing a character that is being formed by either listening to the lies of the three unclean spirits or by listening to three messages that come from the throne of God. Alive or dead, when it happens, the end result's the same for both classes, eternal life or eternal death. See, And the key to this battle has to do with worship. Worship is the main element in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. It's because Satan wants to be God. And that involves worship, right? There's a created being, Lucifer, that wants to be God. And he wants to be like God in that he wants to be in the place of God. He doesn't want the character of God, does he? But rather he wants to be a ruler with entirely different governing principles. He wants a government where the Ten Commandments are not the foundation. But rather he wants a live as you please to satisfy the fallen flesh type of government with the caveat that he's the supreme being that rules over all of it. Satan's policies center in self. And that's just what most people desire. It's what our fallen nature craves. And unless we partake, as, as Peter says, of the divine nature on a daily basis and submit to it instead of yielding to the fallen you know, carnal flesh, uh, we'll be among those that are fooled by this threefold message that comes out of the mouth of the three unclean spirits. Now, it's significant when the Bible tells us that the three unclean spirits come out of the mouth of the dragon, beast, and false prophet. Because out of the mouth is where false doctrines are spoken. Okay, And of course, there's no doubt that the dragon is who? Satan. Revelation 12 tells us that. But it also represents paganism. And paganism is where spiritualism has its roots. And paganism pretty much represents the whole non-Christian world. If you were to divine, uh, define paganism, it would tell you those who do not believe in a creator God. The creator God. So <laughs> that leaves most of the world, no matter what religions they may profess, if they don't follow the true creator God, they're pagans, right? And again, at the, the root of paganism is spiritualism. Let me read this to you. It's from the book, The Great Controversy, page 438. <clears throat> it says, The dragon is said to be Satan, Revelation 12, 9. He it was that moved upon Herod to put the Savior to death. But the chief agent of Satan in making war upon Christ and his people during the first centuries of the Christian era was the Roman Empire, in which paganism was the prevailing religion. Thus, while the dragon primarily represents Satan, it is, in a secondary sense, a symbol of pagan Rome. Now, let me read you a statement at this point because it really nails down, I think, who these three unclean spirits are. And then we'll talk more about uh, how their threefold message actually contradicts and counterfeits the three angels' messages in Revelation 14. This is from Testimonies to the Church, Volume 5, page 451. When Protestantism, and, and I'm sure a lot of Adventists have heard this before, this quote. 
when Protestantism shall stretch your hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power. Now, the Roman power is the papacy, right? Is that first beast in Revelation uh, 13, right? So, the Roman power, when she shall reach over the abyss to clasp hands with what? Spiritualism or paganism, represented by the dragon, remember? When under the influence of this threefold union, our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government. Is that happening today, friends? Oh, man. Have you ever seen such a, an onslaught against the First and Second Amendments? Oh, there's heavy, heavy onslaught against the Second Amendment, isn't there? And that's the amendment that protects it all. That protects the entire Bill of Rights. And here she's telling us that when our country shall repudiate every principle, and it's well on its way, isn't it, of its constitution as a Protestant Republican government, and shall make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions, then... This is one of those if-thens, isn't it? Then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan and that the end is near. That the end is near. Do we believe that the end is near? I think it's closer to the end than we really think it is. As the approach of the Roman armies was assigned to the disciples of the impending destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, imagine that. Here you are, you're in Jerusalem and you see the Roman armies coming in. Would you, if you lived at that time and you seen that and you knew what Christ had told you about, would you think it was about time to, to go? It's about time to get out? The end was near, right? What's it going to take for us, friends? So she says this. As, as the Roman armies was assigned to the disciples of the impending destruction of Jerusalem, so may this apostasy, and the context here, if you go and read through this, is the enforced uh, worship day, Sunday. She says, so may this apostasy be assigned to us that the limit of God's forbearance is reached, that the measure of our nation's iniquity is full, and that the angel of mercy is about to take her flight never to return. There's a statement she says, and, and I know Russ is familiar with it, maybe you, maybe you are, maybe you aren't, where she says, national apostasy leads to what? National ruin. And national apostasy is when they, they finish that image of church and state and enforce a worship day upon the citizens. God doesn't force us to worship Him, does He? That comes from the dragon. So we need to find out who these three unclean spirits are first, don't we? And then what the messages are. Who makes up this team of three unclean spirits? Who are the, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet? Well, the dragon is represented as, as paganism or spiritism. We've seen that a bit already, haven't we? Many pagans worship spirits and, and, and uh, practice various forms of, of spiritism and spiritualism. Have we not seen an increase of spiritualism in the, the last uh, several years, not only in the world, but uh, really, more importantly, in the professed church? Definitely see it in the world. You see it on TV and movies and... Everything today, virtually everything, every kind of entertainment is geared to spiritualism. You've got vampires, werewolves, demons. I mean, just almost every show that you turn the TV on has these kinds of themes, doesn't it? And not just that, that those are the easy things. Those are, oh yeah, those are evil figures. What about superheroes? What about, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, these, um, oh gosh, I can't think of the word. 
They're not humans, but they're mutants. That's the word I'm looking for, mutants. This is all a form of spiritualism. Okay? Evolution. Evolution, exactly. Evolution. Spiritualism is as common today as it's ever been. I think even more so. It can be seen uh, in, in just about everything, especially, like I said, what's called entertainment. Uh, and I'll ask you, do you not still see certain pagan forms and celebrations accepted and promoted in, in the church today? You know, certain holidays, for example. And so the dragon represents paganism. He represents spiritualism. Who's the beast that's spoken of here? Well, this is pointing to that first beast that is described in Revelation 13. The beast the apostle John spoke of in Revelation 16 verse 13 is the same beast uh, that he saw in Revelation 13 too, where he says, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his, his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power. Did you see that? Who gave him his power? The dragon gave him his power. And in this instance, it's speaking directly of Satan, isn't it? The dragon gave him, well, also pagan Rome, as he switched from uh, pagan Rome to papal Rome. Uh, the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority, John said. And so when you read the book of Daniel, it becomes quite obvious that it's the companion book of Revelation because Daniel 12, 9 in Daniel 12, 9, Gabriel told Daniel, go thy way for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Right? And Revelation is a prophecy about the, what? Time of the end. Or an unsealing of the prophecies of Daniel, as I mentioned uh, some minutes ago. So when we read in Daniel 7, for example, about beasts being kings and kingdoms, or governments, or religio-political powers, we can know that this is the way the beast uh, is spoken of in Revelation. It's interpreted the same way. And when you read Revelation 13, verses 1 to 10, it becomes quite obvious who the beast is because what power was responsible for persecuting and warring against the saints for 42 months or 1260 days, which the Bible interprets as years. Remember, a day for a year. What we call the Dark Ages, and it's interesting that the Catholic Church calls it the Middle Ages, not the Dark Ages. What political, religious power received a deadly wound and then was healed? Or you might say, what power looked like it had forever lost its power and then became strong again? What power is the whole world wandering after or admiring today? What power has a man at the head of it and is worshipped by um, 68 million people? What power blasphemes God? Actually, it'd be more than that. That's just members in the Catholic Church. I think he's worshipped by lots more than that. Um, what power blasphemes God by claiming to be able to forgive sin? And claims to be God on earth? Well, friends, that power is the papacy. The office and authority of the Pope. That's what the papacy is. And don't forget, the one that gives power to the beast is the one being worshipped. Who's that? Satan, the dragon, right? The dragon or the devil himself. Now, most Catholics, and, and I want to emphasize this, and, for, and you guys know this here, but for those who, who may hear this later on and, and those who are listening on the internet, uh, what we're talking about is system, a false system of worship. It's not an attack on people, per se, right? It's an attack on a simple... A, a, a system of worship. The Bible is opening up God's true system of worship and Satan's counterfeit system of worship. And the reason God's doing that is because there are real consequences to being in the wrong system of worship. You will lose your eternal life. God wants us to be with Him forever. He doesn't want to lose us. And so this is why we're, He gave these messages. This is why we're studying these things. And so, uh, I just want to make that clear and say that most Catholics don't know that yet. They don't know that they're in Babylon fallen. 
And I'll tell you, when they find out, a great number of them will leave their church and they'll join the remnant that's spoken of in Revelation 12, 17. But right now, the majority, essentially, they're, they're ignorantly worshiping the dragon. And God, praise God, He's a merciful God and loving God. He doesn't hold that ignorance against anyone. They just need to learn the truth. Amen? That's why the three angels' messages have to be proclaimed to help people understand that the threefold message coming out of the mouth of the three unclean spirits are false messages that are leading them down the road to destruction. These people, those that hear the voice of Jesus, are to be called out of Babylon. That's what we're told to do. That's what the three angels' messages are for. They are separating messages. They separate. They call the good into God's fold and the ones who reject it, well, they're already in Satan's fold anyway, aren't they? Sad though it is, it's the truth. The third unclean spirit is called the false prophet. Revelation 19 and verse 20 says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Sounds pretty ominous, doesn't it? Because this third unclean spirit is called the false prophet, it gives it a religious identity, doesn't it? And not only that, but it's found to be helping the beast power. That's what we just read. It helps the beast power. And if you continue to read in Revelation 13, verses 10 to 17, you find another beast power that helps the first beast power, right? Is that a coincidence? Well, it's important that we identify this second beast power because it's the same power behind the false prophet. It's the same power. And we've already discovered that the first beast of Revelation 13 can be none other than the papacy. And we learned in a previous study that the second beast can be none other than the United States of America, but not in the form that it was originally uh, um, constituted. Remember when you read in Revelation 13, it says it had two horns like a lamb, but then spoke as what? A dragon. So it changes, doesn't it? Well, how can we both be so certain it's the United States then? Well, according to Revelation 17, 15, we know that waters and prophecy represent what? Peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues, right? The first beast in Revelation 13 rose up out of the sea. That's water, isn't it? And it means it came to power in a populated area and ruled with despotic power for 42 months or 1260 days according to... Uh, to the day for a year principle. You know, Ezekiel 4.6, Numbers 14.34. Day in prophecy equals a literal year, right? So power was given to the papacy for 1260 years to persecute the saints of God, better known again as the Dark Ages. And when did that end? 1798. In 1798. We found this out, didn't we? Ended in 1798 when the Pope was taken captive by the French general. His name was Berthier. He was under Napoleon. Napoleon ordered him to go in and get the Pope. And he did. <laughs> and then the Pope was taken and he died in exile within the next year. He died. Um, then in the second half though of Revelation 13 you have another beast power coming up on the scene that comes up out of the earth. Well that's different, isn't it? It's not out of the sea, but it's out of the earth. Which means it came to power in an unpopulated area. About the same time that the first beast lost power, which again was when? 1798. So we ask ourselves, well, what country was coming to power in an unpopulated or unsettled area around 1798? Well, there were two actually that were kind of coming up, two countries, but only one fits the bill. There's the United States and there's Australia. And uh, if you uh, were in our study about this, you, we went kind of through and delineated that. And, and so it has to be the United States. It's the only power that was coming up. No other power fits that prophecy. It just doesn't in history. It doesn't fit. 
And notice in Revelation 13, 11, that this power had two horns like a lamb and spake again as what? A dragon, right? In other words, the character of the United States started out like a gentle lamb, but as time goes on, it begins to speak more like a dragon or like the devil or just like the first beast because it makes an image to that first beast. Well, the first beast is the papacy, right? So it copies the papacy, makes an image of it, becoming a state that is controlled by the church. In this case, fallen Protestantism. Because in Revelation 13, 12, it says the second beast would exercise the same kind of power that the papacy exercised and would force the people of earth to worship the papacy. I'm putting it in layman's terms now. The first beast that was healed of its deadly wound, that was the papacy. And from there all worship goes to who? The dragon. So in 1798, the papacy received a deadly wound when the Pope was taken captive. But in 1929, that deadly wound began the healing process when power was given back to the papacy by the Italian Prime Minister Benito Mussolini. And they signed the Lateran Treaty which gave back the treasure. You know, you, you can be a head of state, but if you have no, no place to rest your head and you have no treasure, you're not going to be able to do much, are you? Now they got their treasure and their lands back. That's where the power is. Today the papacy is the most powerful and influential religious power on the planet. Would anyone agree, disagree with that? And I'll tell you this too. They're probably the richest. <laughs> you know, they've spent billions of dollars, billions of dollars to settle these priest molestation cases. Billions. Hasn't even made a dent. That'll tell you something. If you had, you know, there have been, there've been large Protestant churches in this country well, I can't remember the guy's name. Several years ago, he got caught uh, molesting young boys, just like these priests, you know. But he was a Protestant minister. It destroyed that, that church, and he had like 15,000 members in that church. It's not around anymore. How many cases has the Catholic Church dealt with? Dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds. And yet it's still around. Still around. Never made a dent. Just something to think about. But it's the most powerful, influential religious power on the planet, especially when you consider uh, that the Protestant churches are slowly but surely looking to the papacy and lending their influence to her. The Pope is being recognized as the head of Christianity. Boy, it was not that way in the mid-1800s in this country. Mm -mm. Do you recall that the Pope sent a video message to the evangelical and charismatic leaders over a year ago, March 2014. You remember that? The Right Reverend Tony Palmer spoke at Kenneth Copeland's church at the time of this video to publicly call all Protestantism back to the Mother Church and then what they had, they had a big hug fest, didn't they? I'm sure you remember that. In fact, you know that Tony Palmer used to be a, a member of Copeland's ministry? A lot of people don't know that before he became a Catholic. Let me share this with you. Did you know that the Pope met for three hours on June 24, 2014 with several evangelical and charismatic leaders Kenneth Copeland, James Robison, and many others over lunch at his residence in the Vatican. Did you know that? And that wasn't... Well, the reason most people don't know it was is because it wasn't on the Pope's official schedule. And the meeting had no formal agenda, and there were no secretaries present. In essence, no official record of the meeting. I'm telling you, friends, the threefold union's coming together. It's coming together. And so it's rather easy to see, I think, that this false prophet represents fallen or apostate Protestantism. 
the apostate Christian churches that have formed an image or become like the beast in character and intentions. In essence, doing the work of the first beast, doing the work of Catholicism. Even though they're called Protestants, they aren't. They're daughters of the great whore. The three unclean spirits symbolize or uh, represent this evil trio of religious powers which together constitute what the Bible describes as spiritual Babylon. Now we go back to what Ellen White said. She said, As the approach of the Roman armies was assigned to the disciples of the impending destruction of Jerusalem, so may this apostasy be assigned to us that the limit of God's forbearance is reached, that the measure of our nation's iniquity is full, and that the angel of mercy is about to take her flight never to return. My friends, we're very, very close to seeing this accomplished. And we better be making arrangements for it right now. If you live in a city, please start praying and making preparations to get out and into the country, those country settings, so that you can sustain yourself through what's coming. Now, some of you already live in the country. (laughs) That's good. Our God has promised to be with us and to make a way of escape so that we can survive and still evangelize the cities during the Sunday Law crisis. Some people are mixed up about that. They think we need to flee now, get out, forget it. We've got people who are going to die for eternity unless they hear the message we have. There are people who, when they hear about this, these prophecies, these three angels' messages, they will come out of Babylon during the Sunday Law crisis. Would Jesus run away? No. Let's not get the cart before the horse, beloved. We're to live in the country, but travel to the cities to give the last warning messages. Because I'm telling you, the armies of these unclean spirits are approaching, just like those Roman armies were approaching. Now, the three messages that come out of the mouth of the three unclean spirits, the papacy, apostate Protestantism, and spiritism, are competing with the three angels' messages. Have you ever thought of it that way? And if we don't know what the three messages on each side are, it's possible we could be sitting in a church listening to messages coming out of the mouth of these three unclean spirits and not know their messages that will lead us down the road to perdition. The first angel's message of Revelation 14.6, we studied last week, presents the everlasting gospel as well as the news that the judgment has come. It is a clarion call to return to the true creator. So we must ask ourselves, well, what's the devil's counterfeit to this message? Because remember, if there's a true message, there's also what? Right, there's a false. There's a counterfeit message from the devil. Do you remember reading in 2 Corinthians 11 about the dangers of receiving another Jesus? Remember Paul talking about that? He said another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. Isn't that interesting? He said three things. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 4. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Why this threefold warning from the Apostle Paul? I found that very interesting. It's because God wants us to know that there are three counterfeit messages being preached that contradict the truth. The truth of the three angels' messages. These false messages... Now, they may take on different forms, but they all want you to think that you can either do something to save yourself or be saved in sin. Because that's what the great controversy really, friends, when you boil it down, that's what it's all about at its core, isn't it? It has to do with God's law, whether you can keep it or not. Let me remind you, once again, of something I've read to you time and time Uh, again, through the years, but it bears repeating. It's from the Great Controversy, page 582. 
From the very beginning of the great controversy in heaven, it has been Satan's purpose to overthrow the law of God. It was to accomplish this that he entered upon his rebellion against the Creator. And though he was cast out of heaven, he has continued the same warfare upon the earth. To deceive men and thus lead them to transgress God's law is the object which he has steadfastly pursued. The last great conflict between truth and error. The what? The The last great conflict. That means the last one. There's not another one after that. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. People have asked me, why is the Sabbath a, a test? God could have picked any of the Ten Commandments. Do you believe that? It's a test of of loyalty who are you going to be loyal to who is going to be the authority in your life and the sabbath remember when we studied the sabbath the the sabbath law actually encompasses all of them because at the very heart of the sabbath is the father it's his character that's why the sabbath has been chosen as the final showdown test and it's going to show who do you worship? Who is your authority? The Sabbath constitutes law keeping. Sunday constitutes law breaking. It's really pretty simple. So there's really no question as to what the battle's all about. Therefore, the threefold message coming out of the mouth of the three unclean spirits has to be about undermining the law of God, plain and simple. And the three angels' messages have everything to do with upholding and magnifying the law of God because they're opposing messages. Let's look at the the first angel's message. It's an example. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the, what? Everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. That's everybody all around the world, isn't it? Saying with a loud voice, fear God, that means have a reverent awe for God, and give glory to Him, not ourselves, not anyone else, but to God, right? For the hour of His judgment is come. And worship Him. Who? The one that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the mountains and waters. The first angel's message is a call to return to the true creator God. And the message from the unclean spirits is to worship, as Paul said, a false Jesus. In other words, if you're being told that Jesus was different than us, in that he had a human nature that was like Adam before Adam fell, therefore he couldn't even be tempted, so so as he's different than us, see, you're hearing a message from the unclean spirits. You're hearing about another Jesus. And you're hearing another gospel. One that will save you in your sins. The first angel's message informs us that the judgment of God has begun. And in that process, what's part of that process? Part of that process is an investigation of the records of each person's life, right? And what is it about those records that are looked at that help determine your destiny? Whether or not you've accepted the true Christ and been obedient to the law of God. That's what's looked at. Like I've told my kids, ultimately what the father asks is, what are you going to do with my son? If you accept Jesus and he comes into your heart, you're going to become a commandment keeper. So that's the ultimate question the father asks. But it has a lot of consequences, doesn't it? It shows a dramatic difference. If someone today, and and you know who I'm talking about, I'm not picking on people, but you go to most of Christian today and the only difference you see between them and the world is on Sunday they walk into a church and then come out. The only difference you see is their schedule. Right? You don't see no difference in their life. Am I telling the truth? I don't judge them, but that's the truth.
So whether or not you've accepted the true Christ and been obedient to the law of God, that's that's what the consequence is. That's what the investigation's about, isn't it? If you're sitting in a church that says that there's no sanctuary in heaven, or only one sanctuary that's spoken of in the scriptures, you know, no pattern here of one on the earth, or that there really is no investigative judgment because we're born sinners and can never overcome sin, I mean, why would you need a judgment? God knows you're born a sinner and you can't keep from sin and He doesn't have to judge anything, does He? That'd be just kind of a waste of time. You know, if you're told that that you can't overcome sin, if you're uh, told that all you must do is believe in the name of Jesus and that now's not a time of judgment, how many times have you heard, don't judge someone? I think in the last five years I've heard that more from people than I ever have in my entire life. Don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. How readest thou is what I want to know. (laughs) We can't judge someone's motives, but we sure better judge their actions. But you hear that, don't judge anyone. But we're to celebrate instead. Have you heard that? That's really big today. Well, my friend, if you hear those things, you're hearing a message from the three unclean spirits. I'm warning you. Revelation 14.8. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath for fornication. And this afternoon, we're going to be studying more in depth about this second angel. But the second angel's message of Revelation 14.8 gives a call that Babylon has fallen and to come out of her. Or out of a religion that is confusing the truth by mixing it with error, right? That's what the wine represents. A mixing of truth with error. So if the second angel's message is a call to come out of Babylon, then the message of the unclean spirits must be a message to what? Join or stay in Babylon, right? To be a counterfeit. To join or stay in a church that's putting forth any of the Babylonian principles, such as, well, what I mentioned before, but but such as, let's say, the divine-only nature of Christ. You know, that, uh, uh, yes, he had a human body, but that's all. I mean, of course, he could overcome sin because he's God, right? Um, The immortality of the soul. We studied about that before. Um, The two new commandments that that did away with the old ten, you know, they were nailed to the cross by Jesus, right? Uh, Eternal torment in hell. And we'll study that next time we come together. Sunday sacredness and a lot of these other uh, biblical errors. And not only stay in your church that is drunk with the wine of Babylon, you know, that represents, again, those false doctrines that I just mentioned, but even a call to return to the mother church by uniting on those points of doctrine that are held in common, like Sunday sacredness. And let me tell you, like all of those, there's a reason that those are error, and there's a reason that the Catholic Church teaches those. That's what they have in common with apostate Protestantism. And that's that's the call she's talking about when they reach across and clasp hands. That symbolizes that they're in agreement on these doctrinal issues. It's remarkable. The third angel's message. Revelation 14, 9-12. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man will worship the beast in his image, receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture. Why is it without mixture? It's because it's the end, isn't it? Probation is already closed. God's not merciful anymore to those who have rejected his son. It's poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation and he shall be tormented, etc., etc. Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that, what? Keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. These are two things that the three unclean spirits do not teach. They don't teach you to keep the commandments of God. They may teach you to keep the commandments of the church, don't they? (laughs) have a creed, you know, those things. 
Not the faith of Jesus, because the faith of Jesus has to do with overcoming sin. The third angel's message very clearly exposes the unclean spirits by saying that God's saints will be commandment keepers through faith in Jesus. And friends, any message that that deviates from that is a message from the unclean spirits. I mean, think about it. Since those who keep God's commandments are placed in contrast with those that worship the beast in his image and receive his mark, it makes sense that the keeping of God's law on the one hand and its violation on the other is going to mark the difference between the worshipers of God and the worshipers of the beast. A line will be drawn. And like I mentioned before, that line is the Sabbath question. That's the line. So if you're hearing messages that Jesus only wants us to love one another, dismissing what the Bible says about obedience to God's commandments, and and then you're hearing a message from, well, you're hearing a message from the unclean spirits. That's what you're hearing. And so the three angels' messages of Revelation 14 will be the messages the devil wants to contradict and counterfeit in order to gain the admiration and worship of those that are living to satisfy their carnal lusts um, of their fallen flesh. Does that make sense? That's what the devil hopes to accomplish with this threefold uh, message that comes out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. You see, the devil has unity of sorts because his three messages will all lead to the same place. And it's a place you don't want to go. The three messages that come out of the mouth of the, the three unclean spirits are all teaching in one way or another that you can make it to heaven even while you're being disobedient to any one of the Ten Commandments. So, when looked at in its entirety, you have two opposing messages. One calls people to receive Jesus and His everlasting gospel, and the other to receive another Jesus and another gospel. And both groups receive a spirit, but they originate from two different sources. Acts of the Apostles, page 474. By spiritualism, multitudes are taught to believe that desire is the highest law that licenses liberty and that man is accountable only to himself. Does that not describe our culture today? The dragon sends his spirit to deceive and he uses spiritualism to do this work. The errors of the immortality of the soul be used to lead all to worshiping on Sunday, friends. And and so it symbolizes... uh, the mark of the beast, in essence. And it, it causes people to sympathize with Rome. Papal Rome. Being led by Antichrist, this Antichrist spirit, people will be enraged with God's followers because they will be filled with that same satanic spirit. All in all, thinking they're doing God's service. That's the deception. I think I'll close up now. And you get the gist of it, don't you? The three-fold message that comes out of the mouth of the three unclean spirits is a message to convince you that what we just looked at and what we just read is not really the way it is. But rather that you can commit sin, you can still be a child of God, that Jesus was manifest to save us in our sins, not from our sins, and that you can abide in Christ and still transgress the law. That's what it's all about. And please keep in mind, God's love may be unconditional. Haven't you ever heard that? God's love is unconditional. Well, it may be unconditional, but salvation isn't. There are conditions to salvation. Did you know that? God requires obedience to His Ten Commandment law. And if you truly love Jesus, you're going to do what He asks. It's not going to be a hardship for you. He says, if you love me, Keep my commandments. Or more plainly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so, friends, really, our our salvation depends upon rightly dividing the word of truth. Because in the end, people are going to be deceived by that lie Paul talks about. They won't have a love for the truth. And who really is the truth? Jesus is the truth. We want to follow Jesus in the truth, don't we? Let's not be deceived by these three unclean spirits and their messages. 
not only accept the three angels' messages, but let's share that with everyone else. Let's have courage. Pray for courage, because it'll take courage. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we do again thank you so much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had to study into your word. And I pray, Lord, that that, uh, the words that I've spoken today will convict hearts uh, of the truth. And that they may see that the time we're living in is very short. And decisions, right decisions need to be made for eternity. And so I pray for the Holy Spirit to be upon the hearts of, of all. And that we may make the right choices and bring glory to thy name. Not the false Jesus, but the true Jesus is who we want to worship. And we ask this in his name, for he's worthy. Amen.